What's up, family? How we doing today? Oh, man. I love it. I love it. So glad to be here with you all. I want to welcome everybody here at our Northwest campus uh, and everybody at all of our campuses, actually. So great to be here with you. Hey, before we jump in today, we have some celebrating to do. Uh, this past week, we had the chance to see over 600 people journey together for the past 10 weeks through Rooted, and we were able to, to have a graduation for our winter session of Rooted, and we had so much fun, so many stories that came out of it, so much life change. And there were people who didn't know Jesus, and they came to know Jesus for the very first time through Rooted. There are people who've been walking with Jesus for years, and, and the relationship with Jesus was restored, and it was revived and, and renewed, and now they're relating to him in a totally new way. We have 42 groups who started together in Rooted, and they say, no, it's not stopping here. We want to continue to stay as a group together, and they're becoming groups, 42 groups, which is incredible. We had 56 people, 56 choose to go all in and get baptized. Can we just celebrate that? You know, I had a chance to be at our celebration this past Tuesday. Again, so many stories, so many tears, and so many moments of just celebrating what God is doing in the life of our church through Rooted uh, in such a way that we're going to run it back. All right? The next session of Rooted, our spring session, starts later this month, and there's room for you. So if you have yet to go through Rooted, this is an opportunity for you to jump in, invite a family member or a friend, and sign up today. You can go to the website, tpcc.org rooted and get registered, all right? Also, before we jump into the message, uh, I want to do something. I want us to actually pray. Uh, I was reading earlier this week, and I was just reminded of the gift and the privilege that it is for us to be able to gather together to worship Jesus. And I want you to know that I have nothing to offer you outside of what's in this word right here, outside of God's word. And this is not a moment for us to just come in and sing a few songs. This is a supernatural opportunity for us to not only hear the word of God, but to go and to live it out. I firmly believe that Satan doesn't mind us gathering together so long as it doesn't transcend outside of these four walls, as long as we don't live like we believe it to be true. And so I want us to pray that we would just come in with a heart posture that is ready to receive whatever it is that God has for us. So at each of our campuses, would you just bow with me as we pray? Father, what a gift, what a privilege it is to be able to assemble together as, as your church and to be able to worship you. And I pray that we do so in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that you are already working, that your spirit is just welcome here, that you're working in each and every one of our hearts. God, I pray that you would help me to do what I cannot do in my own flesh, and that is to preach your perfect word. God, I pray that as your, your word goes forth, that uh, seeds are planted. God, I pray that you would begin tilling the soil of our hearts to not only receive, but to live out what it is that you uh, have called us to do, that others would come along and, and water that seed, and ultimately, you are the one that grants uh, the increase. God, I was reading in, in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, it says that Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And God, it means that there's, it's a supernatural work that is required in us for, for us to come face to face with your truth, for the veil to be removed from our eyes so that we can see you for who you are and that we can re openly receive the love that you have for us. So God, would you work today? Would you move in our hearts, move in our minds? And God, we pray that uh, your son Jesus gets all the glory, honor, and praise out of this. Everybody in agreement says... Amen. Amen. Uh, well, hey, if, you, uh, if you're just joining us right now, we are wrapping up a series that we've been in called Rebel's Guide to Joy. And uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through a book of the Bible called Philippians. 
Now, Philippians is, is a letter. It's a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a church that he helped start in a city called Philippi, hence the name Philippians. Um, and what you see as you read this letter is Paul's overwhelming sense of joy. Man, you cannot read this letter without seeing just how joyful Paul is. And it is ironic because of the conditions that Paul finds himself in while writing this letter. My man is locked up. He's in chains, he's in prison, and he's writing to his friends in Philippi in some of the worst conditions that he could ever find himself in, yet he is joyful. And so what we have been saying is, hey, if that is true of Paul, if Paul can be joyful in the worst predicament possible, how can we, as followers of Jesus, have joy in, in all circumstances? How can we have joy in some of life's hardest predicaments? How can we have joy when there's loss? And how can we have joy when, when times are hard and, and when there's conflict? How can we have joy when, when our past comes and, and, and haunts us? And we have just been blessed over these past couple of weeks by Pastor Aaron and Pastor Ryan, who have just poured into us from, from God's word. And I am honored to not only call them friend, but to call them pastor. So can we just celebrate our pastors, Aaron and Ryan, for the ways that they poured into us? And they truly are a tremendous gift to this church, and uh, I don't want us to take that for granted. Uh, but we have one more topic to cover in this series, and today we're going to be looking at how do we have joy when money is tight? What a fun way to close out a series, right? <laughs> how to have joy when money is tight. Uh, and before you, you check out on me, before maybe you're new and you're like, see, this is why I don't come to church, all they talk about is money. Uh, before you do any of those things, I want you to know that today's message, it's, it's, not, it's not about money per se. It's not about uh, money or even our different fi financial situations. It's, it's about something, something much deeper than that, something that is at the heart of how we view money and possessions. And, in order to, to learn that, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn there, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, and what we're going to be looking at here in Philippians 4 are some of Paul's last words. He's, he's landing the plane. He is closing this thing out, closing out this letter. And I got to thinking earlier this week, like, if this is me, if I'm in jail, pending a letter to some of my closest friends, how am I landing the plane? What, what am I saying? I'm saying, I'm innocent, get me out of here, send the best lawyer, send Johnny Cochran like right now, right? Um, I'm saying, hey, appeal my case, tell my friends and family members that I love them, some of my closest people that, you know, I care dearly about them. But what does Paul say? Paul doesn't say any of those things just, just yet. He says something uh, much different, something that I think we could learn from. So we're gonna start in verse 10 and we're gonna read through verse 13 right now. So here's what it says in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, And I praise the, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And so a little context here. Uh, while Paul was in, was in jail, the Philippians, they said, hey, I wonder how our buddy is doing. Let's, let's actually show him how much we care about him. Let's show him that we love him. We're, we're going to send him some money. And so all of a sudden, Paul gets a cash app notification for a couple hundred dollars. 
No, what happened was the Philippians, they all put some of their money together and they sent it with this man named Epaphroditus. And they said, hey, e, go and take this money to Paul. Tell him that we care about him. Tell him that we, we love him. And these words right here, this is Paul responding to that gift, that care package, that money that they sent. And he starts out by saying, man, I am so happy. I praise God that you guys are concerned about me. He's thanking them for, for being so generous. And he's, he's saying, man, thank you for being so concerned about my welfare. But then he, he takes kind of like this, this turn and he says something a little bit unusual. I don't know if you caught it. He said, not that I was ever in need. Not that I was ever in need, which, I mean, at first glance, you start to think, is Paul kind of saying to the church, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Like, I actually didn't need that. Like, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good. Like, who says that when they're offered money? Parents, when have your kids ever said that when you offered them money? Hey, thanks, but no thanks, I'm good. Never, they never say that. It kind of reminds me when I took uh, my wife on our first date and we were in high school and I took her to this romantic outing to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I had no money. Uh, she had lots of money according to high school standards at the time. She had a job, I didn't, and she was rolling the dough. Uh, but I say, hey, let's go to Cracker Barrel. And I say, you know what? Order anything you want. Get whatever. No, we're not doing water. Get yourself a glass of orange juice. Throw some cheese on those eggs, every, whatever you want. Like, we're balling, baby. And here's what I know. I know in the back of her mind, she was thinking, oh, how cute. This little boy thinks I need some of his little money. Thanks, but no thanks. And in a sense, you almost get that Paul saying the same thing. Like, hey, thanks. But no thanks, but I don't, that's not really what Paul is saying here. He's, he's, not, he's not being ungrateful. He's not uh, saying these words with pride. Paul is actually setting all of this up to teach them a very, very important lesson. And it's a lesson that you and I can learn as well. Look at what he says. He says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Paul is saying, man, I'm actually very grateful for the gift. I'm actually, I'm actually thankful that you have, have, have thought of me and that you are giving, I actually could use the money, don't get me wrong, but I've cultivated my heart to be oriented around something different, not to be focused on what I do or don't have. I've been, I've been cultivating my heart to, 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 to take this disposition that is centered on a state of being that is very, very different. I, I view money and possessions very, very differently than, than most people. And I think that's something that we can learn as well. But I think it's also important for us to know just kind of the history in which some uh, certain, let me say, faith streams of the church have taught on money and possessions. This isn't the totality of how the church uh, teaches it in general, but, but certain parts of it. And so you have, uh, you have what's called the prosperity gospel, right? Where, um, you know, it's all about health and wealth and prosperity and, and, and God wants to bless your socks off and give you your heart's desires and you name it and claim it and believe it and receive it, right? If you ever hear that, run. Okay, as fast as you can. Uh, he said, amen. Um, but then you have people who swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. And they say, well, well, that's not true. And so God actually wants us to live a life of lack and to live an impoverished life and to endure suffering so that we could be, become more dependent on him. And I would say, if you ever hear that, run as fast as you can. Neither of those are, are true. Both of those two extremes actually take uh, scripture out of context and make them the whole counsel of the Bible. They're, they're caricatures of what the Bible actually teaches. And what we see actually in the Bible is that a life of joy, a life of, uh, of peace isn't found by pursuing all of our wants and desires and being healthy and wealthy and 
At the same time, it's not about intentionally living a life of, of poverty either. What we see, especially in, in Paul's words right here, are, are that a life of joy is found in this state of being right here. Contentment. Contentment. That a life of joy is found in contentment. And I know that's not fun to hear. That is not fun at all. Actually, this is, this is very hard for, for me even. I don't want to be one of those preachers that get up here and act like I got it all together and I don't struggle with anything. Like, no, this is hard for me. Like, as I was studying for this sermon and preparing this week and was reading, I almost texted Pastor Aaron and said, hey, can we, like, switch weeks? Can, can you take this one? I can take Easter. I can preach the resurrection. Like, I'll do that one. You do, you do this one. But contentment is, is hard. What's, what's easy is actually discontentment. And maybe you would say the same thing for you, like, yeah, discontentment comes a little bit more naturally to me. That's kind of my default position. And discontentment is, it's easier because we're surrounded by it. Everything in our culture and everything in society is pulling us the opposite direction of contentment. You cannot watch a commercial without seeing a product or a service saying, hey, if you had this in your life, your life would be better. You cannot scroll through social media without comparing what you have to what somebody else has, where you are to where somebody else is. I mean, the moment you get on Instagram, it's like, they're on vacation again in Turks and Caicos. They just bought a new house with a four-car garage. Hold on, I, I know what she does for a living. Like, how in the world are they affording that? Keep scrolling. She got engaged before me. And then you leave a comment on the post. Congrats. So happy for you. We're, dis We're discontent. But discontentment is not unique to our society. It's not unique even to our recent generations. You can trace this all the way back to the Genesis narrative, where God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the, the, the stars. He created the, the, the land, the birds, and the, and the animals on, on the land. And at the pinnacle of his creation were human beings, Adam and Eve. And God gives them two distinct things. He says, I'm going to give them identity. I'm going to say, hey, let us make man in our image. We're going to give them our likeness. Their identity is rooted in me. And the other thing that he gives them is, is purpose. He says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Reign over the earth. You have dominion over it. All of this is yours. You have access to everything that I have given you. Everything except this right here. This one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? Well, Adam and Eve, they get the first ever recorded case of FOMO, fear of missing out. And they do the very thing that they are told not to do in an effort to get what they didn't have. And what we see is behind the very first sin was a desire for more. It was discontentment. Satan's first tactic was discontentment to sabotage our relationship with God. And it worked. And church, guess what? It's still working. Today, especially in the West, we take this approach of saying, hey, I am not okay with what I have. I am not satisfied with what I have. But we would never say that out loud. No, 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 we would never say that out loud. That sounds greedy and that sounds ungrateful. So how do we phrase it? Oh, just a little bit more. 
just a little bit more and then I will have enough. Just a little bit more money, just a little bit more space, just a little bit more and then it's going to be enough. But here's a question that I've had to wrestle with and because I wrestled with it, I, I want you to wrestle with it as well. What is enough? No, like seriously, I want you to think about that. Like, what is enough? How much is enough? Because I promise you, the moment you get the little more that you are asking for, the goalpost just gets moved down the field. Your desires, they don't change. If anything, they, they get bigger. Your expenses increase, inflation happens, your, your family gets bigger and so you need more space. You, you end up visiting a friend's house that looks so much nicer than yours. And on the way home, you're looking at your spouse like, did you see the backsplash in that kitchen? The marble countertops, call the realtor right now, we're moving. It's never enough, we become discontent. So, so what is enough? I think all of us have this opportunity to, to grapple with this reality right here. I, I say this all the time. Enough is a moving target. It's, it's constantly moving and we're constantly pursuing it, trying to chase it, and it only evades us. Enough is a moving target because say you get the thing, you get the salary increase, you get the job promotion, you get the bigger house, it's not long before you're saying, okay, what's next? What is next? And so we become obsessed with obtaining more only to become less fulfilled. It's kind of like what the great uh, theologian John Mayer uh, says <laughs> in one of my all-time favorite songs, Gravity. He says, twice as much ain't twice as good and can't sustain like one half could. And then he says this, it's wanting more that's gonna send me to my knees. Preach, John. He says twice as much ain't twice as good. The math ain't mathing, it ain't equaling out. But then he says it's wanting more of these things that aren't fulfilling me that's ultimately going to drive me to my knees. And in case that's not enough for you or you don't know who John Mayer is, we can talk after service. Um, <laughs> The Bible is replete with this same message. It's filled with it. Solomon, the son of King David, who Solomon is the wisest and the richest person on the face of this earth. It's like Jeff Bezos who? Um, Solomon is all of, has all of the riches and he comes to the end of his life and it's like, it's not all it's cracked up to be. He writes these words at the end of his life in Ecclesiastes verse five. He says, if anyone, whoever loves money never has enough, Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. He will say it's like chasing the wind. And so I want us to know and notice what Solomon is not saying. He's not saying that having money is wrong. He, he, he's saying, what we say a lot of times is money is, is amoral. It's, it's not good. Or it's, not, it's not bad. Solomon's saying if you love money, you'll never have enough of it. And if you find your identity and security in your resources, you'll do everything in your power to get more of it or to keep from losing it. I know people like that. I've been able to sit down with people in counseling and, and trust me, money is not the problem. They have enough of it to go around. They, they've, they've reached the, the, the success and they, they have the money. The money isn't the issue. Their focus has shifted from obtaining the money to maintaining it, like how, how do I not lose this? How, how do I keep this? 
I can't lose this. I've climbed the mountain. I've gotten the recognition. I've gotten the respect. I've always wanted from family and peers. I've made the money. But now, maybe that's you, and you're saying you're obsessing over doing everything in your power to ensure that it stays within your grasp. And if you're honest, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. And here's the thing. It comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. And this is where Satan does his best work because he's good at showing you the shiny toy. He's good at showing you the promotion. He's good at showing you the false promise of what could be. But what he's even better at is hiding the price tag. He's good at hiding what it's going to cost you. He's good at showing you, he's good at hiding how you're going to compromise and, and the consequences of it. He's good at showing you what you are going to lose. There's somebody in our church now, I, I know this to be true, you're working so much, your marriage is on the brinks of divorce. You're about to lose your family. You're, you're losing your time. You're, you're, you're losing your morals and your ethics. You're, you're losing your peace. And, and, and Satan is, is dangling this carrot in front of you, but what he's hiding is the lack of peace and joy that, it, that it's ultimately gonna bring you. Because it's like cotton candy. You get a taste of it, but then you're like, ah, what else you got? What else you got? I need something more. And so what Paul is ultimately saying here is something that all of us, you and I included, can wrestle with. And he's saying it's not about the things. The things aren't wrong. It's not about what I have. It's about how I feel about what I have. It's not about what I have. It's about how I feel about what I have. No matter what your financial situation is, this is, this is true. If I feel that what God has provided is not enough, and I'm gonna constantly be spending my time reaching for more, chasing the myth that more is better. Or, or I'll develop like this, this, this scarcity mentality, the scarcity mindset where I obsess over wondering, man, do I ever have enough? Will it ever be enough? But hear me clearly. Contentment means appreciating what I do have, even if I never get anything else because I know that Jesus has already done enough. Jesus has already done enough. And so Paul goes on to explain what contentment looks like for him practically in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty or with little. Church, this is, this is Paul doubling down. This is him taking it to the two extremes of living. He says, man, I know what it's like to live with everything, and I know what it's like to live with absolutely nothing. Not only that, I know how to have joy in both of those circumstances. And if I'm honest, that struck me. That struck me, and I began to interrogate my own life and say, is that, is that true of me? If I was to lose everything that I ever had, could I say, could I truly say, not, not the Sunday church answer, but could I truly say that I, would, that I would be content? Could I truly say that I would have joy? And, and that's a question that I, I wanna ask you too. If you were to lose everything materially, could I, could I be content? But I also wanna know, uh, want to, to, to acknowledge that for some people in our church, that's, that's not an if statement. That's not a question. Like, that's your reality right now. Like right now you're walking through hard times. Right now you have lost some of the most significant aspects of your life. And what I do not want to do is I do not want to diminish the, the struggle of what you're walking through and just say, ah, just be content. Ah, just be grateful. 
No, poverty is not fun. I've, I've seen it up close. I, I, I've seen people struggle. I've seen people cry themselves to sleep at night, wondering how they're going to eat the next day. Po- poverty is not fun. And, and we cannot just dismiss it and say, hey, just be content. Just be content. Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not encounter people who were hurting and hungry and just say, I'll just be grateful. Now, what did Jesus do? He, he actually met their tangible needs. He helped to feed them and he healed them and he, he helped to clothe them. And he, he told his disciples, hey, the, the things that you see me doing, you go and do the very same thing. And, and the disciples include you and me. That's why I'm so grateful for the work of, of this church and, and what, we, what we're doing to help meet people right where they are. Man, I'm so grateful for our, uh, our, our outreach department who is mobilizing our church to make a difference in our city, especially in the impoverished areas of our city, and in a way that is not transactional. It's not like a one and done. It's, it's, it's relational and it's, it's ongoing and it's, it's done in a way that helps to bring people dignity and worth in the process. I'm grateful for our, our benevolence department who, who helps people who are in need of financial assistance. I'm grateful for our, our many small groups who don't just show up once a week and say, oh, let's, let's study God's word and then, and then that's it. No, they actually get involved in the messiness of one another's lives. So when somebody falls on hard times and is struggling financially, they're not just saying, ah, oh, that's tough, bro, I'm praying for you. No, they, they get down in the trenches with them and they say, what, hey, hey, bro, what do you need? Hey, hey we're here for you. We're not, we're not just uh, fellow church members. We're, we're brothers or we're sisters. And how can we help you get through this very tough season? That's, that's what the church is, is called to be. And that's what the church in Philippi was doing for, for Paul. They were saying, hey, I, we know that you're in need. Let us, let's actually help meet your tangible needs. And so if you are here and, and maybe you are struggling right now and money is tight and you've fallen on hard times or Honestly, you, you have lost everything. I want you to, to hear Paul's words clearly. Paul is not saying that uh, you cannot uh, have ambition. Paul is not saying that you cannot get to a place of stability and you should just be grateful for what you have and, and there's not a better type of life for you. His words are meant to help you cling to the very person who promises to be with you, even in the darkest moments of your life. They're meant to give you hope and peace. For all of us, I think we cannot read that verse and also a verse that we'll look at here in a second without this takeaway right here that contentment is not natural, it's learned. Contentment does not come natural. Contentment is something that is cultivated, that is learned over time. What's natural? Discontentment. And those of you who have young kids, you know this to be true, right? Like my wife and I, we were privileged to take our kids to Disney World uh, last week. Spent the whole day at Disney World. The very next morning, they wake up and they're like, all right, daddy, what's next? And I'm like, well, why don't you sit on this couch and let me practice this sermon on contentment with you? Can, can, we, can we do that? We have to teach them contentment. And guess what? It does not stop at childhood. We have to continue to learn contentment throughout our growth uh, process. And I don't know if you caught it, but Paul alludes to it as like a, a secret. He says, I've learned the secret of uh, enduring every situation. Well, what's the secret, Paul? Don't, don't hold out on us. Tell us. Well, if you keep reading in verse 13, he, he says what it is. He says, for I can do everything through Christ. Everything through Christ who gives me strength. 
Now, this is the verse that we all know when we think of Philippians, right? I mean, you don't have to be a believer in Jesus to have seen this, this verse. You probably saw it on a coffee mug or a T-shirt or somebody got a tattoo of it. Uh, you've probably seen it a couple of years ago on, on this guy's face, uh, Tim Tebow. And he's the one who really kind of made it kind of uh, not popular, but uh, people saw this and, and they turned it into like this, this triumphal thing like, yeah, I can do, I can do everything. And, and Tim Tebow like really believed this, almost to the point where he took it to the extreme. And he, he really thought he could do everything uh, through Christ, which led him to kind of make this move uh, right here. It's like, you can do everything, but you can't do, you can't do that, Tim. Uh, no, but what happens is like, we know the verse. We, we know the verse, but do we truly know what it means? What it's not, it's, it's not a, a war cry, a battle cry that says yeah, that God is, he's with me in, in everything and I can, I can conquer anything through, through, through him. That, it's not necessarily wrong, it's just, it's just incomplete. Here's what Paul is saying by, by that verse. He's saying the secret to living a life of contentment is living a life through Jesus. That's what the secret is. That's how you live a life of contentment, is I'm going to live a life through Jesus. And that word, that word through, uh, in the Greek, it's, it's almost this, this word that, that means to, to like rest in something. Like to be tethered to it, to be connected to it uh, so deeply that, that, that you're being shaped by, that you're, that you're formed by. And so when this is the posture that we take with Jesus, he strengthens us. He strengthens us to endure all of life's circumstances with contentment because it's only by staying connected to Jesus that I'm able to live the life that he has called me to live. So, so he's saying, I'm staying, I'm staying connected to him because through him, I can do everything. And Jesus would actually say something very, very similar in John chapter 15. He would say to his disciples, those who remain in me and I am them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Say it with me. Nothing. He's saying the same thing, he just kind of inverted it. It's not that you can, you can do everything through, through me. It's, it's also if you stay, if you get disconnected from me, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And Jesus would say, so, so in light of that, remain in me. Abide in me. And that word abide, I, I love it because it means like to dwell in. Very similar to Paul's words through. We have been called to abide in Jesus. This goes back to, uh, to Ryan's message a couple of weeks ago where he talks about uh, apprenticeship. I don't know if you remember that. Where we apprentice our lives to Jesus. We get up, we get up under him and we learn. That's what a disciple is. It's, it's, a, it's an apprentice. It's a learner. And so as I'm, a, I'm apprenticing my life to Jesus, he is shaping me more and more into his image, shaping my character. And I'm so intimately connected with him that not only does my character grow, but my faith grows too. And so I'm no longer walking in my own power. I'm walking in the power of, of Jesus. The strength that I need to be content in all circumstances comes from my surrender to my Savior because I know who my Savior is. The strength that I need to endure when I go through hard times is not because I'm strong, it's because He is. And I know that He is with me. And I know that apart from Jesus, I can do absolutely nothing. That's what this verse means, is that I'm so connected to him that even as I walk through the dark times, I am, I, I'm modeling contentment. And so what does it look like for us to, to abide, abide in Jesus? As I'm studying God's word, that, that means that I'm not coming to, to the word asking, hey, God, what's in it for me? 
God, what do you, what do you have for me? Because a lot of times we can do that. We could put ourselves at the center of the narrative, at the center of scripture. The, the Bible, sorry to bust your bubble, bubble, the Bible is not about you. The Bible story includes you, but it's not about you. And so as I read scripture, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, God, help me to know more of you. God, help me to know your character. Help me to know who, who you are. And in light of who you are, I now see who, who I am, and I also see who I am not. And so I'm abiding in Jesus, and I'm saying, hey, hey, help me learn more about you. I'm reading the Gospels, and I'm saying, this is how Jesus interacted. This is how he, this is how he treated people. This is how truthful he was. But this is also how, how gracious he was at the very same time. And then I go out and, and I, I ask the Holy Spirit to help me model that in real time. And I'm abiding in Jesus in my prayer life. And as I pray to God, I'm not asking my desires to be met. I'm taking a very different posture and I'm saying, God, help, help your desires to become my desires. That's what it means to, to, to abide in Jesus. That's how we live this life of contentment by staying connected to Jesus. It moves us from being at the center to God being at the center and saying, okay, because you're at the center, I'm content. But if that's not enough, then I want us to give, us a, I want to give a few practical ways that we can model contentment. And all of this comes out of really abiding in Jesus. And so maybe you uh, wanna write these down or take a, a picture of them and uh, if not all of them, you pick a couple of them and say, you know what, that's a growth area for me. I'm, I'm gonna strive to abide in Jesus in this way. So here's four of them. Here's the first one. Abiding in Jesus helps us to establish reasonable standards of living. And we can read that and we can be like, all right, Kyle, well, what's reasonable? That's kind of subjective and I get it. I would say this then, um, are you living within your means? Or are you living beyond your means. There was a question that was asked to me years ago when it comes to this, and it's stuck with me ever since, and has convicted me, and so now I wanna throw it out to you. If Jesus was overseeing my personal budget, how would he manage my money? If Jesus was overseeing my finances, how, how would he spend my money? How would he, how would he give my money? How would, how would he uh, store and even save my money? And so that's a question that all of us can, can wrestle with. And maybe your first step is like, you know, I don't, even, I don't even have a budget. So maybe that's where you start and then say, okay, God, what have you given me? How can I live within the means that you uh, have allowed me to have? Because it's all yours to, to begin with. And so I'm going to, I'm going to tithe and I'm going to give sacrificially and, uh, and I'm, going to be, I'm going to be generous, which, which leads to the next one. Abiding in Jesus helps us to enjoy the habit of giving. It helps us to enjoy the habit uh, of giving. We all can take this posture where we say, you know what? It's not mine to begin with. And it breaks the power of money over our life. And we say, because God gave everything for me, including his one and only son, I'm going to give as well. That's going to inform the way that I steward my, my finances. And so uh, we give. We give. We, we, we give sacrificially. We, we, don't, we don't give foolishly, but we don't give selfishly at the very same time. Uh, here's the third one. Abiding in Jesus helps us to express gratitude. It helps us to express gratitude. This is, no matter your financial situation, this is something that each and every one of us can do, is be grateful for what we do have. And maybe your first step is like, I'm gonna start a gratitude journal, where every day I'm just gonna write down one or two things that I'm, that I'm grateful for, things that I do have, things that I can really uh, appreciate. And maybe you do it on a granular, minute level. Like, don't be afraid to get, to get seemingly small. 
God, I'm thankful for the friendships that I do have. God, I'm thankful for the family that you have given me. God, I'm thankful for the job. If I'm honest, I don't like it, but I'm grateful for it. It provides a means of income, and I'm going to steward it well, and I'm going to to show up on time, and I'm going to to be faithful with what you have given me. God, thank you for the living environment that I do have. It's, It's not the most lavish thing, but it's something. It's more than what many people have. God, thank you for the food that is on my table. God, thank you for the ability to, to be able to provide food that, that goes into my body. And this is something that I've, I've honestly tried to live out my, myself. I'll be in Costco placing a whole case of water in the cart like, God, thank you. Thank you for the water. God, thank you for what you have given me. God, thank you for these crackers. God, thank you uh, as, as I'm paying for a meal. God, thank you for the means to be able to provide this meal for, for my family. All of us can express gratitude that uh, doesn't focus on what we don't have, but helps us to focus on what we do. And then here's the last one. Uh, Abiding in Jesus helps us to eliminate worry. Some of us are so, uh, we're burdened by worry. What if? What if it is all taken from me? What if I lose this? What if I lose my job? What if this next paycheck doesn't come through? What if, and, and, and abiding in Jesus helps us to develop this trust and this faith that God sees me, he cares about me. The word says if he cares for the lilies and the sparrows, how much more, how much more does he see you and how much more does he love you? How much more will he provide for you knowing that God takes care of, of them? I know that he's gonna provide for me also so I don't have to worry. I don't have to constantly be checking the stock market and my bank account and, 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 and my, my check ledger book, if you still use one of those things. Um, I don't have to be bogged down with worry. Why? Because I know that that God is going to take care of me. It's the very thing that Paul would say later on in this, uh, in this letter to the Philippians. Look at what he says in, in verse 19. He says, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. This same God, this same God who takes care of me, who has taught me how to be content, no matter what I have, he's he's also going to to take care of you. He's going to supply all of your, your wants. No, no, no. All of your what? All of your needs from his glorious riches, which is ultimately found in who? Come on, church, ultimately found in who? Christ Jesus. Church, we have been given everything that we need in Christ Jesus. He has given us everything. He has given us all we need. We don't need to run to find joy and fulfillment in anything else. God has given it all to us in his son. Jesus went to a cross and rose from a grave so that we could experience the life that God has always wanted us to live, a life where our identity, our purpose, and our provision are all found in him. Every single bit of it. Which begs the question, why are we looking at everything else to bring us fulfillment? Why are, we, why are we running to the things that ultimately leave us empty? The cotton candy. Why are we running to these things that only continue to leave a void within our heart? And God would ask the very same thing to his people. There's a, there's a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 55 where God is, is speaking through the prophet to his people who are wrestling with the very same thing. They're chasing after all these things that are, that are not substantial. And God would say this, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. 
Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Oh, I love that. It's almost like what we prayed for at the beginning of service. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. So the church, is, is anyone thirsty? Is anyone here tired of living a life of discontentment? Is, it, is anyone here feeling this void that, that is in your heart and you're, you're, you're chasing after the job, you're chasing after the money, you're chasing after the attention and the recognition and then you get to the end of it and you realize like, you know what? It's not all it's cracked up to be. It keeps me coming back for more and more. This whole time God is saying, no, no, come to me. Stop chasing the fabricated forms of fulfillment and come to me. I'm, I'm the real thing. And it reminds me of a couple of years ago, uh, I took my family down to Atlanta to visit my brother. And while, while we were there, we went to the Georgia Aquarium. Phenomenal place, phenomenal place. And throughout the, uh, the, the aquarium, they have these, uh, these interactive elements, you would say, like these touch screens and things that you can actually go up and touch and learn about. And so they're often we're right next to the actual exhibits. And so my daughters would sprint up to each and every one of these touch screens every time we went to a new exhibit. And they'd be like, whoa, so cool. And they would touch it and they were like, oh, that's, that's awesome. And they would slide in their fingers and, and looking at all these things that tell about you know, the fish and where it lives and how big it is and, and, and all these different specificities of, of, of the fish. And they'd be like, daddy, daddy, come look, come look, look at, look at the shark. And I'd be like, baby, there's, there's a real shark like right here. <laughs> look at, this is the real thing. And in a way, in a way, it's exactly what God is saying. I, I'm the real thing. You're running up to all these things and you're thinking that they're exciting. And you're thinking that it's going to bring you joy and peace and fulfillment. But what you're ultimately longing for, the thing that you're looking for, it's ultimately found in me. And the same way that he says in Isaiah 55, I'm asking, how much longer? How much longer are you going to chase after these things when ultimately what you're looking for can only be found in me, and he's giving this invitation to salvation and saying, hey, you come to me, and those longings will be fulfilled. Jesus would say, if anybody drinks from this living water, they will never be thirsty again. Jesus would say, hey, come, come to me, all of you who are, who are burned out and weary and, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. You're striving for all these things and, and, and you're left with discontentment. The contentment can only be found in me. And so I just wanna to ask today, what are you abiding in? Who are you abiding in? Because if it's not Jesus, then it's falling short. And you can come in here and you can play church and you can sing the songs and you can serve all, all meaningful things. But at the end of the day, do you have a vibrant, interactive relationship with God who is saying, no, like I give you everything that you need. That's where true contentment actually is because I designed you, I created you, and I created you with, uh, with what only I can provide for you and what you are longing for. The contentment that is in your heart that you're seeking can only be found in my presence. And so I wanna invite everyone at, at all of our campuses to, to stand to our feet. We're gonna enter into a time of of worship again. 
We're gonna sing that song that we sang at the very top of, of service, gratitude. And I want us to sing it like we mean it. I want us to sing it like that we know that the only thing, the only person that we need is Jesus, that we're grateful for all he's done. We're grateful for who he is, the sacrifices that he has made. And I'm gonna pray, and as I come out of prayer, we're gonna enter into this time of worship, but I want us to, to worship in spirit and in truth. So join me as we pray. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that, that you went to great lengths, the, the length of giving your son Jesus for us, who lived the life that, that we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die so that we could have a relationship with you. And that ultimately that satisfaction that we're looking for, that contentment that we're looking for, Father, I pray that you get our eyes, not horizontal, but you get our eyes vertical to be able to see you for who you are. God, I pray that you help us to abide in you, that we would remain tethered and connected to you so that we're not focused on what we don't have, but that we, we actually see what we do and we and, uh, do have and we appreciate it. That we see you in all of your glory and we know that even if I never get another thing, who you are and what you have already done is, is enough. And for today, we express our hearts of gratitude. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for all you've done. God, I pray that if there's anybody wrestling with that today, Lord, that today would be the day that they have an encounter with your spirit who begins to change them from the inside out and would tell them, hey, I'm the real thing. I am all that you need. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. It's in your perfect and precious name that we pray. Amen.